This is episode two of the Learning Leadership podcast uh, with me, Simon Balderson. And me, Stuart Elks. Uh, in episode one, um, if you heard it, we used the US Marine Corps rating tool or evaluation tool to look at what might constitute the eminently qualified teacher. Um, and we covered some really interesting stuff there, I think. There was uh, a really big focus on teamwork and the individual contribution to the team being really highly valued. And we thought about how some of that stuff could relate to education. And we covered a few uh, few things from our own backgrounds. Um, I thought the idea of a hot debrief was was really, really interesting from uh, from Stuart's military experience. And that idea of as soon as something has happened, as something, something has gone wrong or a project is complete or whatever it is, uh, immediately sitting around a table and talking it through. And then maybe with a bit of reflection time, coming up with with a plan for improvement um i thought was was fascinating yeah absolutely and it's definitely something i've taken with me actually into you know the things i'm doing here at school it's really useful tool i think um i like that sort of healthy environment um and just air it all get it out there you know reflective practice yeah certainly from running it teams you know there are those sort of big occasions when the server crashes and all the phones go down or and and suddenly you've got people you know running into the office it's a sort of high pressure uh, environment and and being able to immediately reflect on what went wrong and then come up with a plan for how you're going to make sure that doesn't happen next time is is just really good practice i think so that's yeah. interesting stuff cool so today we are going to look at personality testing in one form or another, or personality profiling, and how you could use that, uh, how businesses use that, and how perhaps schools could use that to build highly effective leadership teams. Uh, so we've got a few bits and pieces to look at, and in particular, Stuart and I have both taken a personality test. Uh, we haven't looked at each other's results yet, so it's gonna be interesting to see how we compare. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you are probably familiar if, you've, uh, if you're in business or you've seen how business run these things with tests like Myers-Briggs and personality profiling like that, or in particular, the Belbin sort of set of descriptors is really, really popular amongst, amongst leadership teams. I think Belbin originally wrote that paper in 1981. It's got a it's quite a venerable, you know, paper describing the different, uh, the different personality types which could go into making up a team, and how having a blend of those things is going to lead to a more effective leadership team. And so I think you know a lot of people are probably familiar with terms like complete a finisher, and things like that, which come straight from Belbin. Uh, and so having somebody in your team who is going to make sure that stuff gets done is critical I think it's you also need those other people the sort of really creative types coming up with all the ideas but to be really effective you've got to get it done and therefore the mix of people who are doing and people who are you know thinking and visionary is what's really key I think for a an effective leadership team yeah absolutely uh, it's really interesting having a look at that um, and the so to sit alongside that is to have the leader to coordinate it all and make sure that mm -hmm. you've got your creativity, you've got your uh, your doers, uh, and you've got your sort of whether it's um, adding meat to the bones, you know, sort of finding more resources, investigating um, uh, more sort of data analysis, things like that, and and they've all got to be team players. So that social aspect is hugely important as well. Yeah, and it's the role of the leader or whoever's chairing the meeting, I suppose, to make sure that everybody has a voice, that, that those different personality types get to express their particular view in order to come up with the best collaborative decision. It's a cabinet government, I suppose. Isn't it? Yeah, and ultimately, the interesting thing is that it's about leadership, but you ultimately do need someone there to sort of you know coordinate it, bring it to okay. So what are we going to do about that? Whether it's you know getting people to action the points, or just keep the meeting moving, not letting it sort of procrastinate, um, but also to keep it concise and this is what we're going to do. Let's move on, you know, um, and keep it on point, mm -hmm. as it were. So um, I did a, an MBA in educational leadership at the Institute of Education recently. Um, and one of the lecturers there, Max Coates, uh, has a book called The Constant Leader, Maintaining Personal Effectiveness in a Climate of Accelerating Educational Change, uh, which has some really interesting bits. Uh, we'll put a link to it on the website, uh, learningleadership.net. But in particular, chapter nine of that book 
is about this particularly, about, about leadership teams, about their profiles, and how you can achieve the best balance. And so he says in, uh, in his book that to achieve the best balance, there should be one coordinator or shaper, not both for leader, a plant to stimulate ideas, a monitor stroke evaluator to maintain honesty and clarity, one or more implementer, teamwork, or team worker, resource investigator, or completer finisher to make things happen. And so that's ex exactly what we were just talking about, I suppose, wasn't it? And having somebody who's going to hold people to account and not allow meetings just to become places for sharing interesting, great ideas, which is brilliant, but then they've got to actually turn into action. Yeah, uh, really, really important. And I think... <laughs> As a general rule, meetings are very good for airing stuff and seeing the creativity and all the people that have arrived and that's where the sounding boards you know, fire up other ideas and you think of things you might not have thought of in the past. Um, and then it's just doing something with that information, isn't it? And making sure that that is then actioned upon and there's some, you know, by the next meeting in a fortnight or whatever, then it's there's clear direction for everybody to go away from the meeting and, and get on with something. Yep. Um, that's really I suppose what's quite interesting is how a leader constitutes their team, particularly in a school environment. And I suppose we all start as teachers. You know, we do our NQT, we, we, spend, uh, we spend some time learning to be a good teacher. And how you then pick leaders from your cohort of teachers is quite interesting. It's a very, very different role, isn't it? So quite often, I think people will be promoted to the role of head of department or head of faculty or, or even higher through being a really good teacher which is great and and a really really valuable skill but isn't necessarily mapped to being a good leader yeah and, and we're all up against it with time you know personality tests aren't done mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, generally in schools and a head teacher sort of is making a decision on yeah what they see in the classroom uh, what they're like as a person um, there are a number of reasons aren't there sometimes people are promoted through just time in the job or mm -hmm. Um, through the need for that position to be filled yep. and whatever really um, and it's it's I suppose it's having that reflective period and if as a head you're in a position where you have to appoint somebody um, without as rigorous a process as you would like maybe putting a 12 month sort of period of you know sort of see where they're at at the end of that mm -hmm. and then and then either open up the position again or say, you know, it's a sort of rolling contract or I don't know. That's where there's lots of ways to do it. I suppose in, in business, uh, personality profiling or psychometric testing is can be quite common in certain sectors. I don't think it really is at all in the education sector. And I'm not really sure what the legality is around, <laughs> around personality testing as part of the interview process. But I think perhaps knowing the constitution of your team has got to be really valuable, hasn't it? And, and equally as an individual knowing your own makeup, what your strengths and weaknesses are, has got to be hugely valuable in, in making progress. Yeah, and, and I think it's something just overlooked a lot mm -hmm. of the time and not really, like you say, because we don't, it's not common in schools, if present at all. Mm -hmm. um, and you only know so much about an individual, certainly after an interview day or you get an idea and then after a few weeks of them in the job, you sort of think you get to know them. And, but it's such a big picture, isn't it? And you want the best possible appointment as possible. Um, and I suppose from an individual point of view, you know, the worry with this is not wanting to move too far on the journey, but is to pigeonhole yourself and say, all right, well, yep. I am a, exactly. I am a yep. finisher, I am a, mm -hmm. a coordinator, a leader. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we should allow people to be able to move in and, and develop other areas. I think what's interesting is, you know, we've both taken this personality test and, and we've probably both got bits that we're, we're you know, slightly interested by. <laughs> and, and the question really is, well, you know, we've taken this test, we've got a result. What can be done now to change that mm. result? And so, so if you come particularly low or high on one scale, can you, can you move the dial and what do you need to do to do that? So that's quite interesting. Another sort of type of test, we've talked about Myers-Briggs and Belbin. Uh, in particular as being in quite common use. There is one called motivational mapping, which Max Coates talked about in his book. And I used that as part of one of my MBA research projects on a particular school and, and their, their team. It involved a, a really simple sort of grid ranking of, of those descriptors that they use. I mean, it's, it's very, very similar to Belbin, but, but just slightly nuanced, I suppose, um, to try and categorize each member of a particular team. 
and and therefore to try and rank the effectiveness of that team. And that, that came up with some really interesting results. And, and I think perhaps it's, a at least as a thought experiment, really worth uh, all schools, all leadership teams, giving that sort of thing a go. I mean, at the time in the team that I was looking at, there were there were some new younger leaders, some people newly promoted into their positions, lots and lots of ideas, you know, really keen to, to make lots of changes, all of which is hugely positive. But there was perhaps a lack of somebody saying, okay, you have that great idea. What, what is going to happen? What is the action that comes from that? And then how are we going to measure success? How do we, how do we know when it's done? How do we say, okay, this fantastic idea has been implemented. Let's move on. So that, that, was, that was a really interesting exercise to go through. And I guess the link to that is, should that come from that sort of decision? Should it come from the position? So was it a case of not having someone slightly senior to those other senior leaders mm-hmm. um, to ultimately be responsible for bringing it to a, a close or uh, saying, right, the follow-up meeting is here and we're going to look at the success of those particular ideas? Or is it just down to the personalities? Do you need to have someone in that position? And it can just be your role within... Yeah, your peer group of, of people um, to get things done. Well, that's quite <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Because you could say, okay, actual personalities from a test aside, your role within this team is the accountability exactly. person. Yeah, I, w- I wonder how effective that would be to essentially assign that role to somebody yeah. and say, your job in every discussion is to say, hang on a second, what are we actually going to do about this and yeah. when will we know it's done? That's, I think that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and I think that's quite a popular thing, you know, that I think that I can see people that being a, a good role to fulfil in some ways, I think because people do, I know people who get frustrated by the lack of doing mm-hmm. and, and they're very aware of the um, things that aren't followed up and, and that's a frustration amongst staff, I know it is sometimes. So, Okay, yeah. so... We took a personality test. <laughs> this one is a different one again. Um, it's uh, sometimes known as Ocean uh, or the Big Five. You answer about 100, 100 questions. You rank yourself um, according to about 100 or so phrases. There are lots of different versions of this out there. Uh, we took the test at understandmyself.com and that gives you quite detailed feedback about you know, exactly how it feels your personality uh, compares g- given your answers, and it ranks you against a number of different uh, number of different aspects. They are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Hence the Ocean acronym. So this is quite interesting, and we we've both taken it. We have not conferred before this about about exactly how it came out. How did you find it to take it? Uh, yeah, I. I found it very simple to take the mm-hmm. layout, the setup, uh, how it phrases. It's very succinct, uh, very short, not even sentences really. Um, sort of statements, very short sentence uh, statements that you can just you know click on as sort of a, a scale, isn't there? One to mm-hmm. five. Yeah. Um, a sort of completely disagree all the way to fully agree, um, and neither agree nor disagree in the middle. So it's very simple and very easy to um, put yourself. In that position and sort of think right okay that's there were a couple where i had to really sort of stop and think mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. most of it was straightforward but yeah to to get my excuses in early <laughs> oh, here we go. i think there's uh with all of these things when you use a sort of like a scale self-assessment ranking of of your own impression of yourself um i'd be really interested to know more about the research behind this of, of which there is a lot there's a lot of you know, high-quality, peer-reviewed research behind this particular scale. But but it would seem to me to be an inherent flaw that you are ranking yourself, and therefore surely the personality traits that you're ranking yourself on affect the ranking that yeah, you give yourself. They come into play, don't they? Yeah, and surely. so somebody with low self-esteem, for example, might give themselves a really low ranking when it comes to comp- questions about competence or, or how effective you are at something, which might not be objectively the case. I mean, it does say, doesn't it, at the beginning, there are some caveats. Mm-hmm. It says make sure you're in the right frame of mind to be sitting the test, if, even down to if, if you're hungry, yeah. <laughs> you should go and eat, <laughs> just to make sure that, you, I suppose, you're as objective as possible. Yeah, Yeah. so I, I suspect I may have overthought my answers a little bit <laughs> and, and wanted to sort of um, convey that I'm comfortable with chaos, as it were, and that it's yeah. sort of wading into chaos and sorting out a situation, but 
that may have affected slightly some of the some of the answers mm. that have come out. But we'll we'll see. We'll see. I mean, that's an interesting <laughs> one, isn't it? Is the sort of you sort of wanting to portray a certain. It's sort of when you look at those the statements in the box, you're putting just matter of factly what is fact as far as you're concerned, or is there? A, I'm sure there's a little bit of. I want to be more yeah, like that. Well, this is what I'm trying a, to yeah. do. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And not, so, not sort of in a in a cynical way, as I'm trying to be this sort of person in a false way, but it might be just something you've been really working on mm-hmm. of late or know it's an area of weakness and really even, or it's someone that you admire has those things and you aspire to that or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah, some interesting leeway, margin for error, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Good, okay, so let's, let's get cracking because this particular report that it gives you uh, is really quite detailed, probably more detailed than there are there are other sort of open source big five or ocean tests that you can do online, which work in a similar way but give you not very much detail in their feedback. Whereas I thought the interesting thing about this one was how much detail it gave you. Yeah. So each category is broken down into two subcategories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one that they report on is agreeableness, and that is broken into compassion and politeness um, yeah. as the two sort of aspects of agreeableness. And this is quite interesting. I came out as moderately high in agreeableness. I came out as high. Oh, really? Interesting. 88th percentile. Well, I think this is this is quite interesting. I was 68th percentile in, mm. in agreeableness overall. But the descriptor of, of what people who are high in agreeableness mm. are like, I thought was quite interesting. People high in agreeableness are nice, compliant, nurturing, kind, naively trusting and conciliatory. <laughs> However, because of their tendency to avoid conflict, they often dissemble and hide what they think. People low in agreeableness are not so nice, stubborn, dominant, harsh, sceptical and competitive, and in the extreme, even predatory. <laughs> However, they tend to be straightforward, even blunt, so you know where they stand. Really interesting. Yeah, so I think probably people listening might recognise some of those traits in themselves. I, I certainly thought I'm, I'm probably on the more agreeable end of the spectrum. Hmm. And, and whilst on the surface you might say, oh, it's nice to be agreeable, yeah, it's nice to get on with people and to, to, to mesh well and work with people, Actually, some of those negatives about a tendency to avoid conflict uh, or being conciliatory or dissembling are perhaps things that, that make you think, well, I wonder if there are situations where I should, I should be less agreeable. And, and actually, yeah. for the benefit of the team or the project or the, the school, you know, actually say what I think, because there is some value there that, that needs expressing. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that, you, you know, that there's pros and cons to all of this. Like you say, at face value, look at the word agreeableness and you think, well, surely the higher the better. Mm. But there definitely are, you know, even says as um, you may even hide what you think more if you're more, you know, higher up on the agreeable Mm -hmm. stage, which isn't particularly an attractive quality you might think in yourself because you think directness and straightforwardness uh, and those things are uh, sort of far better for a personality type in some ways, certainly in work. Because that's sort of... sort of almost related to sort of honesty and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And so maybe somewhere closer to the middle, to, yeah. to the 50th percentile, might actually be the most effective. I think it's quite agree- quite interesting that rather than just that broad description of agreeableness, it then breaks it down even more and gives a really detailed yeah. uh, sort of summary of what, what your particular result means. I thought some of the descriptors here were really interesting. Things like moderately agreeable people have to be careful not to be taken advantage of particularly by disagreeable people and they might find it difficult to engage in arguments and may even avoid discussions with less agreeable people and they have to work at bargaining for themselves or at negotiating for more recognition or power they may have somewhat lower salaries and earn less money in consequence wow yeah so for my i mean it says people with a high degree of agreeableness um, often believe that competition with its losers and winners is morally wrong Um, and i just you know, I'm sort of really at odds with that, really. I'm, mm. I'm quite competitive in lots of ways. Um, but, you know, it's there by the by. And it's, um, it also says that they tend not to be very good at bargaining for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm brilliant at bartering, so I'm not too <laughs> sure. About... But I think what's quite interesting is the, the interplay between these different measurements. Mm. So uh, it says, uh, you know, for example, when it's talking about not being so good at bargaining for themselves... It, all of that can produce a tendency to resentment and hidden anger, mm. particularly among those who are also high in neuroticism. And therefore, you know, this neuroticism trait is also... Keeps coming back, in. doesn't it? 
and therefore maybe, and we've yet to get to it, yet, but maybe you're really low in neuroticism and, and just an agreeable person who is also good at bartering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that is mentioned, isn't it? The, the sort of right the way through is, you know, often it's sort of a caveat, well, this is only the case if sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting one is it says uh, negotiating, often struggles with negotiating for more recognition or power. Um, and I thought, when I read that, I thought it's quite a British thing about not blowing your own trumpet, yep. and the sort of stereotypes comes into play a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, some um, sort of modesty and yeah. not, yeah, not shouting too much. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, and I thought I thought, found the last sentence of that paragraph quite interesting. This can mean that problems that should be solved in the present can accumulate counterproductively across time, yeah. and that that is that is definitely something to to think about. I think which is, uh, for for agreeable people. Yeah. <laughs> So apparently women are higher in agreeableness than men, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is interesting. So the, the the mean percentile for women in the general population is 61.5, whereas for men it's 38.5. So we are both way over that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm go. not sure what that means for, for the quality of the podcast. Well, it would be nice to listen to, perhaps. It? <laughs> yeah. Great. So then the aspects of agreeableness that we looked at were compassion yeah. and politeness how did you fare in compassion I, i'm just thinking actually i underlined something right at the end of that first sort of feedback from agreeableness and it said agreeable people caring as they do for others are much more likely to enter professions associated with people such as teaching nursing which are dominated by women generally. interesting yes so i thought well there we are that sort of rings true with us yeah absolutely we'll take, take, take it as a profession and and it'll be interesting to find the mean percentile for that yeah uh, so compassion High, 88th percentile. Oh, interesting. I was moderately high, 66th. There we are. Both nice round numbers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what does it say? About me. So, highly empathetic and caring, however, yep. because they are so other-orientated, they may find it difficult to negotiate on their own behalf and may not get what they deserve for their hard work, for example. Um, and this can lead to resentment, yep. as you mentioned before. As we were just talking about. Yeah, really interesting. Now, there's some, there's some interesting effect from your political views as well on here, isn't it? It says yeah. those who are liberal politically score somewhat higher in compassion than conservatives. Now, I think this is using, uh, obviously, that's, the, that's liberal and conservative with a small L and a small C. And, and I suspect that the American nature of this, uh, those definitions of liberal and conservative slightly are different. probably slightly different to how we might interpret them in the UK. Mm. But that's, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the sort of stereotypes just keep flooding back, yeah. doesn't it? And you sort of you start to end up boxing yourself as you, you feed, read this feedback, don't you? And yeah. I suppose that's good. Yeah. It's reflective practice, isn't it? You're looking, you really are looking in the mirror, and even just here talking about it and discussing it, you like when was the last time you really sort of just looked at yourself yeah. and strengths, weaknesses, and why you find things difficult or uncomfortable or hard to confront? Or I think it's particularly good if you then think. And now what am I going to do about it? Sure. So, so yeah, I mean, I've sort of been through this with a highlighter and, mm. and highlighted a few bits and pieces and thought, well, okay, what am I going to do about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how can I improve in this? And by choosing not to do anything about it, it says a lot about your personality mm. as well, doesn't it? Um, and I think this is, uh, they say when you come to take this test that it's a sort of once only test. You shouldn't take it and then immediately take it again because you'll have got a sense for the reasons, questions. Yeah. And all. But I wonder whether perhaps reading it, reflecting, coming up with a plan... And then taking it again after three years or something yeah. like that might be quite an interesting exercise to see how have things actually changed. Yeah, and what have you done about it? Mm. I always remember going on a course, uh, educational course, my NQT year, and they, I think it's quite common practice now, right at the beginning or at various points throughout, um, we had to write down on a post-it note something that you would like to action at work in the long run. And then on the back of it, you put your school's address mm-hmm. or your home address and they send it to you in you know, <laughs> Interesting. in a yep. year's time yeah, just yeah. to look back and you think, oh, blimey, a bit of a reminder coming yep. through the door. You need to get on with that. That's <laughs> there we are. So politeness. Yeah. Moderately high for me. Um, for me, high. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I was at uh, 81st. Oh, 65th. So that we're, we're fairly we consistent in our, we in our scores, aren't we? And I was 66th in the last one. You were 88. Yeah. Um, 81st in this yeah. one. 61st, yeah. So moderately polite people tend to be deferential to authority and are generally obedient. Yeah. So it's the same for highly polite. Yeah. Uh, they're respectful and hate to appear or to be pushy. Mm-hmm. They're uncomfortable challenging other people. 
highly polite people will try to dil uh, try diligently to avoid conflict and have a more intense desire than average to steer clear of confrontations or fights. Yeah, it's, it's essentially the same for moderately high, but just with slightly different wording for, for scale, effectively. But that's that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, as somebody with a, a military background, I suppose there is there's a pretty concrete structure in, command, in the military. Yeah. And at the same time, it's all about conflict, isn't it, in, in one sense? And, and sort of balance... Um, Yes, it is all about conflict, but at the same time, it's so much about teamwork and mm -hmm. getting on and, and throwing caution to the wind with the odd sort of <sighs> friction you might have with your team players. The bigger picture is far more important. You've got to get in the mission done or whatever. Um, and I did actually think that I'm, you know, I don't feel uncomfortable confronting others about certain things and in certain spheres, and that's not even in a sort of rose-tinted way. I just mean, actually, I, I don't really have a problem with that. But I think maybe overall I... I avoid uncomfortable situations, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I certainly like to sort of fill the void in a room if it's yeah. <laughs> quiet. <laughs> maybe that's the class clown in me, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I'd say this is probably essential for a leader to really think about, though, isn't it? I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you are by necessity going to have hard conversations with people about stuff that makes them and you uncomfortable every now and again. And, and being comfortable with discomfort is is probably yeah. going to be a key trait of you know an effective leader and learning to frame things in the right way mm -hmm. um it all comes into that doesn't it about and timing of when you confront and, and bring things to yeah bear. so, so the, the the style and the nature of how you confront something that's that's awkward or difficult is is going to be really important but i think avoiding it totally because you'd rather <laughs> sure. not have the conflict is is not going to be a good thing no. <laughs> absolutely agree so conscientiousness High. Oh, I had low. So oh, wow. This, and this is quite interesting yeah. because I think this... It, <laughs> Not good that you were low and conscientious. <laughs> good that we're different. Good that we've got it. Yeah, there's something to talk about. But, but this is interesting because I think I know that I have a tendency to do lots of different things and, and therefore, you know, say yes to lots of things, have lots of things on the go at once... Uh, and therefore, that can come across as being, you know, either procrastinating or not being focused on a particular task. And I work really, really hard to try and put structures in place in my day and, and, and all sorts of other things to try and counterbalance that. So it'll be really interesting to see what the, yeah, what the difference is. Yeah. Um, should we go through the descriptor at the top? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it says, um, high in conscientiousness, uh, which is the primary dimension of dutiful achievement in the big five personality trait scientific model. Conscientiousness is a measure of obligation, attention to detail, hard work, persistence, cleanliness, efficiency, and adherence to rules, standards, and processes. Conscientious people implement their plans and establish and maintain order. Now, those all sound like really, really good things, don't they? Mm. <laughs> and at the same time, I think you need people who are rule breakers and clean and <laughs> cleanliness is probably a generally good one but yeah. but but think outside the box and are visionary and not just following rules sticking to the sticking to the rules that someone else has laid down and the standards and the processes but is but are thinking of exciting interesting new ways to do things well that's my that's my excuse anyway <laughs> and quite right i mean how or you wouldn't get anything done would you if everyone was the sort of bright ideas wouldn't happen in meetings if everyone was of this and had this trait and and hence the need as we've already talked about to, to balance yeah, your teams and and have you know a balance of everything here so i came out as uh, disappointingly <laughs> the 11th percentile for conscientiousness wow. 83rd 83rd goodness yeah. well i'm sure you're very very clean <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite. It says i slog away until work is done um, work hard and dislike wasting time uh, unlikely to procrastinate particularly if they're also below average in um, neuroticism if a highly conscientious person promises to do something, um, he or she will probably do it, even in troubled circumstances, without mm -hmm. excuses. They are decisive, neat, organised, future-orientated, reliable, and not easily distracted. I mean, that... Interesting. Yeah, I yeah. am easily distracted in some ways, and um, certainly I'm guilty to procrastinate every now and again. But yeah, probably as general, yeah... That's really interesting because um, because it says people who are low in conscientiousness, mm. uh, it says things like, do not regard duty as particularly important. They will only work hard if pushed generally by outside forces and don't mind wasting time. They are highly likely to procrastinate, particularly if they're also above average in neuroticism. 
Even when people with low levels of conscientiousness commit to doing something, there is a good chance they'll be late or delayed, even when there's no real reason for it. They tend to formulate and deliver excuses for their failure under such circumstances, typically blaming the situation for the problem. They are not decisive, neat, organised, future-orientated or reliable, and they find themselves too easily distracted. So so this is one of those things where I think I've yeah. possibly overthought my answers, because I think my failing is is taking on too much is 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 and that is a failure of planning i think you could you could put it down as but i would say that i work really hard on individual projects and can be quite absorbed in in individual things so i wouldn't quite uh, i wouldn't quite say no. that's a full descriptor of of me as it were no and i must admit from an outsider looking at uh, that really goes against a lot of, I think, what I've seen in not, not only your role, but you as a person in the things that is going on around around school. And, you know, it doesn't really ring true with I know some of the things that you like doing in your free time and your personality types. So. Mm. But like you say, take them with a pinch of salt. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know. I, the, the bit that I disagree with the most, actually, and I've, I've put a big don't agree with this, <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth putting it, is that it says people low in conscientiousness tend to be relatively free of guilt, shame, self-disgust and self-contempt. Other people, however, are likely to react negatively to their tendency to slack off and avoid responsibility, particularly if those other people are disagreeable and conscientious. But that's really interesting because I, I certainly feel the, the weight of tasks that need doing, and that's a real motivator for, for getting things done. So, so uh, perhaps I'll just shuffle on, myself slightly it? up that scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So conscientiousness. I think I've underlined quite a lot in mine. Um, a lot about sort of high standards, mm-hmm. uh, reacting badly to failure, yep. um, disgusted by my own moral transgressions as well as those of others, um, suffer shame and guilt when unemployed or otherwise unoccupied, even when that occurs through no fault of my own. Highly conscientious people are also fundamentally committed to personal responsibility. They tend to be convinced that those who work hard should and will be rewarded, and that those who don't deserve their who don't yeah, deserve their failure. And I just think that that is a big one for me. It's sort of, I'm a big believer in the system. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, and I think that's really important, sort of institutions, what they stand for, and, and, and position, and, and rank, and role, whatever. Uh, and, I, and I think, so that sort of rings true a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Good stuff. So conscientiousness is, again, split down into two categories, industriousness and orderliness. Uh, which is interesting. Now, I only came out as moderately low in industriousness, which, <laughs> which is interesting. And so, where where did you come with with that? High. High. Okay. Well, I suppose you would do with with your exactly. high overall score. Yeah, conscientious. Uh, highly industrious people uh, likely to be successful in school and in administrative and managerial positions, particularly if they're intelligent. Mm-hmm. They value work highly and typically want to be doing something useful. They are dutiful and tend not to put things off. They do not often mess things up. They always finish what they start, and they do it on schedule. They are frequently figuring out how to accomplish more in less time with fewer resources. Interesting. They have focus. Interesting. So it says uh, for people who are low in industriousness, if they are highly intelligent, they are likely to be regarded as underachievers. Mm. Uh, it says they have a tendency to put off responsibilities, concentrating more on fun, worry, relationships, excitement, or creative endeavour. They lack focus and are easily distracted. So yeah, some interesting stuff there. Again, I I think that the way in which I answered some of these questions has skewed the, mm. the ranking slightly. But it's really interesting to read those descriptors and, and think, actually, where do I fall on that scale? Where, you, you know, yeah. where would I put myself? Because some things ring true, more so than others. Mm-hmm. So it's like you say, it's a really useful reflective practice to do this, um, taking into account that results might be slightly skewed. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, I suppose, is it, it seems to be really useful on a personal level. Yeah, if you can, if you can take this test, and even if you disagree with some of these things, you can say, "Well, actually, where am I? What, what would yeah. I do, and how could I improve that?" That seems to be highly, highly useful. Uh, that sort of self-reflection, and yeah. I, I suppose if there's a question over the accuracy of these results, you know, how how much should a business or a school mm. or a team use this and say, "Well, it says you're twenty seventh percentile in in something, right. so therefore I'm only put, you know, you're not going to." be part of this team because this other person is 80th percentile and, and we're looking for that particular trait. So I think that is quite interesting. And as I say, on a personal level, it's, it's fascinating and, yeah. and could be a really good tool for individual improvement. But perhaps on a, 
on a business or a school level, you need to know what the margins for error are. Yeah, and, and is it right then that a head, or CEO, whatever, you know, boxes you in as an mm. employee uh, and says, well, this is at odds with what the report says, therefore, you know? Um, so can be used as a guide, but probably in conjunction with other things, you know, obviously team building days or whatever it is. Looking at some of the things in uh, in industriousness for me, it's likely to judge shirkers and believe that people fail because they don't apply themselves or work hard enough. <laughs> and I'm not one for making excuses. I really hate that sort of self-pitying mentality. Yep. So that sort of rings true. But at the same time, I'm, prob- I'm, n- I'm never... I don't really think, oh, that was just bad luck. You know, I'm mm-hmm. ever the optimist. You know, yeah. so you make your own luck and do something about it, get on with it. So yeah. you're you're in control of, of yeah. what's happening. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so next category uh, as the subcategory uh, is audulent orderliness. Hmm. Mo- moderately uh, high for me. Very low. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't. Again, I don't think is true. I I think. I could be, I'd say I'm probably about the midpoint, actually. I'm not as tidy as I'd like to be, (laughs) but but probably not really low in terms of, you know, tidiness, planning, order, and and that sort of thing. So so just because I'm so low on this one, (laughs) it says people very low in orderliness are not at all disturbed, upset, or disgusted by mess, disorder, and chaos. They just don't notice such things, or if they do, they don't at all care. They see the world in shades of grey, not in black and white, and are extremely non-judgmental and devil-may-care in their attitude towards themselves and others. They never use and positively dislike schedules, lists or routines, and even if they plan, almost never implement those plans, (laughs) preferring to take things as they come and letting chance determine the outcome. They are not at all oriented toward detail and very rarely abide by rules or procedures. (laughs) I have a running joke with my, uh, my wife that... She's sort of she's she's strategy and I'm tactics. <laughs> Big picture. Um, I'm, I like to you're, think that I, I would have been. Yeah, I was I was high on the orderless when I left the military, but you know, four years out now, and <laughs> I'm sort of now moderately high. I'm not quite as orderly as I used to be. Um, interesting. On the, it says moderately orderly orderly people are more disgust sensitive than average and somewhat judgmental and have a tendency towards more authoritarian political attitudes. Mm-hmm. Which, hmm, interesting. Maybe I'm pleased that I'm not high. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, what do I have put here? It says detail-orientated, but tend not to be obsessive. Um, and I underline that because I, I, defi- I don't think that I have an addictive personality. You know, some <clears> people can really throw themselves into something and be all-consumed yep. by it. I don't generally have that. I like to sort of dip into lots of things and keep things going and interest in this, pick this up and... Um, my wife always tells me off for not finishing books, you know. I do finish them, it just, I might have three on the go at once. Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Interesting. And I think perhaps perhaps as a way of removing the, the skew that might be caused by overthinking the answers or by your own personality traits, we, we were talking earlier about how maybe if somebody else were to rate, somebody who knows you really well, like mm. a spouse... Were, were to rate you on on this same test, it would be quite interesting to compare the results, and it might give you at least another perspective on what you're really like, as opposed to what you would like to be yeah. like, or how you perceive yourself, or or those sorts of things. So yeah, maybe maybe we should pay to have our wives <laughs> <laughs> also take this test, yeah, and it, maybe uh, and, it, and on our behalf, and it would probably be then somewhere in in the middle, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, mm. the, probably true representation at the bottom here it says uh, they can be good at ensuring that complex sensitive processes are managed properly and carefully uh, i mean no one likes to be micromanaged but um i know within house parenting it's sort of i really struggle to delegate mm-hmm. that's a yeah. definite flaw yeah. but uh, making making sure things are done properly i tend to work over overdrive interesting and and right at the end i thought which was uh, which sort of seems obvious but is worth saying i think it says orderly people are more likely to have items such as event calendars drawer organizers laundry baskets irons and ironing boards in their immediate environment so they, they're sort of yeah. tools of being organized yeah absolutely um also says since women are on average more orderly household disorder will trigger disgust and discomfort in them faster um, this may happen with sufficient frequency, so they end up doing a disproportionate share of the work, even though if they waited a bit longer, their less orderly partners, <laughs> often men, might end up equally troubled and motivated to fix the problem, like DIY. <laughs> it's, just, it's funny, isn't it? It's got a sort of dry yeah. uh, take on it. But I think it's interesting because I, I've definitely worked on 
orderliness, on those sorts of things mm. over the past few years. And, and it's precisely that sort of to-do lists and, and systems, time in the calendar for particular tasks, just make you so much more effective. And so that's, that's why I slightly disagree with my ranking, having done quite a lot over the past few years mm. to really try and to change that particular trait. Uh, because I think it's so critical, particularly for somebody in a leadership position to be. Yeah. And I'm also sort of um, quite a visual learner. I like things being clean, tidy and, and look ordered. So, you know, my office in the boarding house is, is a prime example. I'm always moving it around and sort of making sure it's, you know, just neat and tidy. And I have to, I can then, I feel then that I can work and be more productive yep. in my work. When There's a different are, sense of calm and order. And, yeah. yeah. Whereas I know some people just don't need that. They don't need to visually have it set up in that way. Mm-hmm. Great. Let's move on. Next next big category, extroversion. Mine was typical or average. Uh, high. High. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So that's one of the other, the other big five. And it says, extroversion is a measure of general sensitivity to positive emotions, such as hope, joy, anticipation, and approach, particularly in social situations. Mm. So I was 47th, so almost bang in the middle. Wow. 86th. Okay. Percentile. Yeah, t- it says, warm up. Uh, quickly to other people tend to speak first and most often in meetings they can be captivating and convincing uh, and they'll often be first to act which I thought is is definitely true for me Um, involving it says people are high on the extroversion so the scale make enthusiastic employees and are well suited to jobs involving sales persuasion working groups and public speaking particularly once again if they are low in neuroticism and they're not as suited to occupations that require a lot of isolated work, such as computer programming or accounting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which definitely true for me. Interesting, yeah, because being bang in the middle, if effectively this says pretty good at this, but can also do that for all yeah. of those things that you've just uh, you've just talked about. It says, with average levels of extroversion, can fit well into a range of jobs, sociable enough to engage in jobs involving sales, persuasion, working in groups and public speaking. I mean, I love public speaking. It's one of the things I really, really enjoy doing. But equally, I also have to spend a lot of time, or have had to spend a lot of time, programming and you know sitting in a darkened room, yeah. you know, developing systems for for stuff. So that's that's a really interesting balance. Yeah, absolutely. And women are slightly more extroverted than men, apparently. And yeah. the mean percentile for women in a general population is fifty-two, and for men it's forty-eight. So there's not there's not much in that, is there? But it's, no. uh, interesting. So that is broken down into enthusiasm and assertiveness. Enthusiasm. High. Oh, low. <laughs> this is good. I think you seem you seem to be doing better than me on some of these things. Yeah. What does it say about enthusiasm? So high for me. Um, high enthusiasm, which is one aspect of extroversion, puts your score uh, at the seventy ninth percentile for enthusiasm. Individuals are high, are excitable, <laughs> happy, and easy to get to know talk rapidly about everything, particularly other people. They laugh or giggle much more than average, and they want to be around people. Uh, they love parties. They don't keep people at distance and keep little private. They're positive and optimistic. They warm up quickly, um, and they like and sometimes crave stimulation, excitement, activity, and fun. Enthusiastic people are gregarious, encouraging, and people-loving, and, they, and they're positive about what might happen next. Interesting. So, so this is one, again, which I don't think I fit completely, because mine is 21st percentile. It says, people with uh, low enthusiasm are not excitable. They're much less easy to get to know, as they are not chatty or bubbly. Mm. And when they do talk, it tends to be about things in which they find particular interest. Uh, they laugh much more rarely than others. They prefer solitude. And although they can, can enjoy themselves around other people, it has to be in small doses. They are much more private people and are not markedly positive or optimistic. They avoid the spotlight and, if creative, may find performing much less desirable and draining. They rarely seek out stimulation, excitement, activity or fun. And then to skip a bit, it says uh, they find it more difficult to generate a felt sense of excitement when offered the opportunity to engage in something that others might find engaging or exciting. So that's really interesting because I'm not sure I fit that profile at all. But having said that, I vastly prefer public speaking to small talk and, and conversation so I'm, I'm sure I'm not up at your percentage but that is it's really interesting to think about and to think about how how useful that is in a leadership position I mean it's it's critical to have people skills to be able to to talk to anybody to you know start a conversation with anybody and 
you know, to engage with people, to build a relationship with them in order to be more effective in, in whatever role you're in. Yeah, absolutely. And whether that whether you can be both or does one sit at odds with the mm-hmm. other, you know, that small talk, I know small talk, I suppose probably comes easier to me um, than public speaking, I think, mm-hmm. generally. Um, I think public speaking is such a skill. Um, and But I genuinely believe you can get better at it the more you do, the more oh, you yeah, practice. And, it, yep. and it's, there's so many little things that you can do straight away. And... And really, small talk is it's easy to say, oh, I'm no good at small talk, but actually it's a precursor to more interesting things. You, you've, got to, you've got to do the basics before you start. You can't just go in and start a conversation about I don't know, any topic you find particularly interesting. And so it's, it's a key skill. And, and again, this is an opportunity to reflect on that and, yeah. and do something about it. I think knowing your subject matter is so important there. Mm. So with public speaking or small talk, you know, it's a lot more confident if you, if you know inside and out your topic mm-hmm. isn't it um, or you have a passion for it so assertiveness is the other subcategory high um, for me moderately high for me okay so 73rd percentile for that one uh, highly assertive people are take uh, a take charge types they put their own opinions forward strongly tend to dominate and control social situations assertive people can be influential and captivating they have a co- the communication style that is often associated with leadership interesting yeah this is good when they are knowledgeable competent and able but an, but not so good when they aren't <laughs> obviously assertive <laughs> people are people of action they don't generally wait for others to lead the way and they can be more impulsive than average and can act without thinking yeah hmm. very very similar descriptors again obviously because these are closer just some slight changes in the terminology yeah. they've used, but there's there's some interesting stuff about leadership in there, isn't there? Yeah. And and again, assertiveness is going to be critical in a leadership role, but equally, you've got you've got to take other people's opinions into account as well, haven't you? And and sort of very high levels of assertiveness, not backed up by knowledge and experience, is is going to be really negative, isn't it? Yeah, selling your idea, you know, mm-hmm. or um, getting people along with you is so so important, isn't it? Um, but I think generally it's nice to have sort of indecision is often seen as a weakness, isn't mm-hmm. it? Certainly in, in leadership, and I know in the military it was a real fence sitters are not generally the ones picked for you know to get things done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, next big category: neuroticism. Mm. I was moderately high. Low. Oh, interesting. Mm. I, I, I guessed that you might be. Mm. And, and, that, and it's really interesting how that would play out with the other traits that we've yeah. already talked about. Um, so for moderately high, uh, it says neuroticism is a measure of general sensitivity to negative emotions such as pain, sadness, irritable, defensive anger, fear and anxiety. So mine was 64th percentile. And it, ha- it says people with moderately high levels of neuroticism are somewhat more likely to think that things have gone wrong in the past and are going wrong now and will continue to go wrong in the future. <laughs> They're also more, a bit more likely to be unhappy, anxious and irritable when just thinking or remembering and when they encounter a genuine problem. They have lower than average levels of self-esteem, particularly when they're also low in extroversion. Neuroticism is a risk factor for anxiety disorders and depression. Again, it's one I slightly disagree with. Mm. I'm fairly stoic about uh, about most things. But having those descriptors there, again, is is a really interesting point for reflection and to think how how do i approach things when things go wrong what's what's my reaction what would the best reaction be and how can i make sure that that's what i'm doing in the future yeah for a low level um people with low levels of neuroticism rarely focus on the negative elements anxieties and uncertainties of the past present and future it is rare for them to face periods of time where they are unhappy anxious and irritable unless facing a serious sustained problem even under the latter conditions, they cope well, don't worry too much, and recover quickly when stressed. They're good at keeping their head in a storm, and they seldom make mountains out of molehills. I know I don't tend to um, carry a chip on my shoulder. I tend mm-hmm. to bounce back quite quick yep. and um, things like that. So it sort of rings true, and I, I can think of lots of examples, certainly in my previous career, where that was more evident. I was the 16th. So it says people with moderately high levels of neuroticism appear to be somewhat risk averse, which means they will be less likely to pursue or enjoy recreational, career, financial and social situations where the possibility of loss is high. Such people appear to be concerned with maintaining their current status rather than enhancing it. Mm. Perhaps this is a good strategy in genuinely dangerous or uncertain times. 
it says I can handle risk substance, um, substantively better without becoming unduly concerned, rarely concerned with security, and can more easily handle <laughs> recreational, career, financial and social situations where the possibility of loss is higher. I mean, I am not a gambler in any way, shape or form. It just doesn't interest me. I'm not... I don't know. So that's a slightly different... But you're, a, uh, you're an outdoors, exploring, yeah. presumably... I'm, I'm not risk-averse in mm-hmm. that sense, practically. Uh, yeah, I suppose. But... So with my finances likely to jump out of planes and, and yeah. sail off high buildings and things <laughs> doesn't bother me in the slightest but yeah, yeah funny so that is broken down into withdrawal and volatility mm. which I got really interesting answers for I got high for withdrawal but moderately low for volatility interesting I got yeah very low for withdrawal and moderately low for volatility. Mm. So. Well, we match on volatility at least. Yeah. That's <laughs> First one. <laughs> so, withdrawal, it talks about uh, individuals high in withdrawal may feel above average levels of anticipatory anxiety. This makes it much cha- more challenging for them to approach new, uncertain, unexpected, threatening or complex situations. They are instead substantially more likely to avoid or withdraw in the face of the unknown and the unexpected. Mm. And people with high in People high in withdrawal are much more frequently or much more likely to feel sad, lonesome, disappointed and grief-stricken. They have higher than average levels of doubt and worry, become embarrassed easily, are self-conscious and strongly tend to get discouraged in the face of threat and punishment. Yeah, interesting. I don't think that matches me at all in that I really enjoy taking on new new things. In fact, I have sort of a whole series of different things that I'm interested in starting starting something new or approaching new things or learning new things is is really interesting um they things like recovering strikingly easy uh, easily and remark- remarkably quickly um people with low levels of withdrawal are simply not warriors technically withdrawal has been associated with activity in the brain systems that regulate passive avoidance which i thought was really interesting, interesting. yeah yeah um, yeah <laughs> and then volatility Moderately low. Moderately low, yeah. So I was 34th percentile. Wow, 34th. 34th, there we go. That's a (laughs) complete match there. So So tend to not to vary much in their mood. Um, Not particularly irritable. We feel lower levels of disappointment, frustration, pain and social isolation. People find them easy to be around. Um, They calm down quickly. Certainly sort of makes sense to me yep you know so if if overly provoked in a dispute a person of average volatility may react in kind mm. particularly if also low low in agreeableness however such people tend to remain calm and unperturbed even when stressed volatile people tend to get upset if something bad does happen while people high in withdrawal the other aspect of neuroticism tend to be concerned that something bad might happen technically volatility has been associated with activity in the brain systems that regulate flight fright uh, fight, flight, or freeze. And that seems to be a really, again, a really critical aspect of leadership, doesn't it? Remaining calm under pressure, still able to take detached, sensible decisions without being sort of caught up in the situation. And, and yeah, to be able to take that step back, objectivity, mm. pragmat- uh, pragmatism, you know. Yeah. Okay, this, I think, is where we're, we're going to differ in these last ones again. <laughs> Openness to experience. Mine was exceptionally high. Wow. Typical or average? Okay. <laughs> so I was, I was 98th percentile for, wow. for this, which is really interesting. It, it talks about uh, a measure of interest in novelty, art, literature, abstract thinking, philosophy, as well as sensitivity to aesthetic emotions and beauty. Mm. And you know, I have a degree in philosophy, so that, <laughs> that explains some of it, I suppose. But, but nevertheless, I, I th- as much as I think that the other bits were too low, I think these bits are probably too high for right. me. But, but it's interesting to see how you felt yours went. Yeah, and that doesn't really ring true. I mean, I did philosophy at A-level. I find it sort of really interesting and <laughs> things like that. But, um, yeah, I was 41st percentile for me, so, you know, quite low down there. But what are the things that I feel ring true to me? Uh, we've got I mean, people who are average or typical, uh, typically in openness to experience can adapt reasonably well to situations or occupations that are routi- uh, routinized and predictable. They uh, have little trouble fitting in at the bottom of hierarchies. They can better 
be better suited than those who are more open to entry-level repetitive rote positions because they aren't compelled to think up new ways to do things. They are not uncreative thinkers, but are less commonly known as creative or revolutionary. They rarely shake things up, particularly if they are also agreeable and less assertive. So it says people with exceptionally high levels of openness to experience are almost always characterised by others as extremely smart, creative, exploratory, intelligent and visionary. They're extremely interested in learning and are constantly acquiring new abilities and skills. They're extremely curious and exploratory. They are exceptionally interested in abstract thinking, philosophy and the meaning of belief systems and ideologies. They live for cultural events such as movies, concerts, dance recitals, plays, poetry readings, gallery openings and art shows. They are very likely to enjoy writing or even be driven to write. They enjoy complex abstract ideas and deeply love to confront and solve complex abstract and multidimensional problems. And there's lots in there that I think perhaps the, the scale with which it's expressed is, isn't necessarily mm. accurate. But, but those things seem to ring true for lots of things that I'm interested in, at least. Mm. But, but what's really interesting is the difference between that and the other rankings and, and the descriptors of those and how they just don't match at all. <laughs> no. and, and so the sort of stuff about you know, being curious and exploratory and acquiring new abilities and skills and doesn't seem to line up with the stuff about... You know, some of those other rankings that, that yeah. we've looked at and so the interplay between those two things I think is quite interesting it says um, tend to read an average amount but more mainstream material They, these people with uh, a typical or average level have a normal range of interests and a reasonable vocabulary they can think and learn reasonably quickly they sometimes find themselves formulating new ideas and are articulate and, and articulate enough to get their thoughts across particularly if average or above in extroversion People average in openness now and then see old things in new ways, but are also satisfied with the tried and true. They they can solve day to day problems well and sometimes seek out a more difficult challenge. I mean, it's all very <laughs> ten to and yeah, reasonably yes, and yeah, in the middle, isn't that? <laughs> yeah. In the middle, yeah. And so it says for it says exceptionally high levels of openness to experience appear necessary to the formation and leadership of business and other forms of complex organization which is quite interesting although conscientiousness appears required for the attention to detail and process management that such organizations also always need so it's great to have high levels of openness but you know conscientiousness at least for me given this given the profile that it's given is going to be so important to to work on in order to make sure that you know, it's actually being utilised properly. Yeah. I thought this bit was quite interesting. It says, because people who are exceptionally high in openness to experience are interested in absolutely everything, they can find it hard to settle on a single path in life, mm. to specialise to a necessary degree, and to create an integrated identity. And that, that sort of is true, I think. There's lots of different things that I've been interested in over a long period of time. And so, uh, and so finding a thing, a definition of oneself, is... It's hard, but actually, I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. You know, I think I no. think a broad range of experience and uh, and being a generalist is is a real positive. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and that sort of not only desire but ability to take on new things and spread yourself across lots of different uh, areas can be hugely beneficial, can't mm. it? Both professionally and socially, really. But it does say that open, unconscientious people tend to be underachievers, particularly if also above average in neuroticism. Such people appear to have the capability to succeed, can learn quickly and are creative, but they seldom implement their ideas. And so that, that is a real, you know, that's something really, really to watch. Isn't yeah. it? And, 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 you know, a really useful part of this process, I think. Yeah. So what's the last one? Last so is that broken down into, yeah, ex so openness to experience is made up of intellect uh, yes, and openness. One. Yeah. So intellect, intellect, moderately low. Oh, I, I got exceptionally high for, yeah. for that one, which again, I feel is too, too high. <laughs> but it does, it does make the point that, um, you know, there's a note at the top that says, do not confuse the personality aspect of intellect with IQ. Intellect is a measure of uh, interest in abstract ideas, essentially, while IQ is a measure of processing speed, verbal ability, working memory and problem-solving capa capacity and is better measured with a formal IQ test. It is perfectly possible to have a high IQ and a low score on the personality trait of intellect mm. or the reverse, which which I thought was really interesting. It's sort of intellect with a small I, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's sort of a bit more abstract in that sense. Uh, moderately low in intellect, which is one aspect of openness to experience. It puts me on the 34th percentile. Okay. Uh, moderately low in intellect, less likely to have 
evince interest in ideas and abstract concepts. They tend not to appreciate learning about philosophical ideas. They don't want to be overloaded in, with information, particularly if it is complex. They are less intellectually curious and will rarely voluntarily tackle and solve complex abstract problems. They are less likely to engage in issue-orientated discussions or to enjoy idea-centered books. They can be somewhat less articulate, particularly if average or lower in extroversion, and may have some difficulty formulating and communicating their ideas. People moderately low in intellect may have a vocabulary of somewhat less than normal breadth and depth, and like to stick with the tried and true rather than learning new ideas and skills. They will be less likely to seek out or generate novel, creative concepts, or finding and adapting to new experiences and situations. Yeah, I... I came out on the 97th percentile for that and, and it's the same sort of language that, mm. it, that it uses um, but just with different descriptors I suppose yeah. and so you know, it talks about vocabulary and uh, generating novel concepts and, yeah. and adapting to new experiences and situations but I think that in a leadership role probably particularly in schools actually when you're, you're dealing with you know, constantly changing complex situations the mm. whole time I mean that's that's the very nature of the job isn't it is is going to be a really key skill and so I suppose having looked through all of these things and we're almost at the end of the, mm. the, the whole report thinking about what can be done to improve and actually whether improve is the right word in yeah. in that I think at each end of the scale there are benefits to to being higher or lower in these in these various traits but but I suppose it's to think well what what would I like to be? How would I like to proceed in the future? And uh, and therefore, what can I do to try and change any aspect mm. of this that I'm I'm unhappy with? Because a bit, you know, the in two ways of going onwards from this is sort of do you, you know, really sort of go for your strengths and and look at developing those to the point where play to your strengths. You know, mm -hmm. in, in some respects, you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or look at your weaknesses and say, right, well, I want to be more of a complete package and 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 address those. The eminently qualified person. Quite. Uh, look at your weaknesses. <laughs> um, says so. People moderately low in intellect find complex, rapidly changing occupations less to their liking and are less likely to do well at them and less high in conscientiousness and low in neuroticism. Mm -hmm. They are better suited to stable, straightforward and more traditional occupations where the rules for success are well defined and tend not to change. Liberals are higher in intellect than conservatives, although the biggest difference between the two is openness to experience at the trait level. Hmm. Yep. Cool. So the final final descriptor is is that subcategory again of, of openness to experience, which is openness. Again I was I was high on that one exceptionally high and the in the ninety sixth um, percentile. Wow. I'm bang in the middle, 51st, typical or average. Yeah. <laughs> so it says the closest synonym for openness rather than openness to experience, which encompass, encompasses both openness and intellect, is creativity. Open creative people love beauty. They must have an outlet for their creative ability or they simply cannot thrive. They must be surrounded by art or beautiful crafts. They're extremely sensitive to colour and architectural form. They love to collect things, sometimes to the point of obsession. They are exceptionally imaginative and love to daydream and reflect on things. They are remarkably affected by music of many genres and are likely to be musical or artistic themselves. Both of these are rare in the general population. They can get completely immersed in a book or a movie or in their own thoughts and become totally oblivious to the outside world. That is true. <laughs> and they respond unusually strongly to beauty, beauty creativity and art. Wow. And there, uh, some of that is true. I, th uh, I think I at school and, and beyond in particular, played an awful lot of music to a, a reasonably high level. Yeah. And, uh, but it's interesting that there, there are other aspects to sort of things that I've done that don't necessarily fit with that. So there's the sort of computer programming and, and, and the focus on one particular yeah. task as well. So so how that fits within this particular measure is, is quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's all very, yeah, the final statement so typical or average, interested in, um, but by no means obsessed with beauty, creativity and art. Sometimes they enjoy collecting, but it is rare for them to pursue it passionately. They're reasonably imaginative and they may daydream and reflect on occasion, uh, tend to enjoy music, often more conventional popular forms, and maybe somewhat musical or artistic themselves. Both of these are rare in the general population, like you say. So very much sort of sometimes, but not always. Mm -hmm. And then interestingly, in, in terms of we were talking about, you know, these can be both positive and negative, mm. it, it kicks off with open creative people can be impractical and flighty, <laughs> however, yeah. particularly if low in conscientiousness. It can be extremely difficult to transform creativity into money or into a career. 
Although yeah. it says that high levels of openness are, however, necessary for entrepreneurial success and often prove useful at the top of hierarchies, even in very conservative occupations such as banking, accounting and law, mm. which need creative people in leadership positions to provide new vision and direction. And then you know, that's, that's, we're back to how this is important in leadership. And, and so that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I'd keep looking back to those sort of those roles in the Belbin mm-hmm. example um, and where maybe I fit into that, yep. you know, because you can't just have one type, can you? <laughs> <laughs> it just won't work. Well, I mean, we, we have dramatically different scores, but perhaps yeah. that means that we're balanced as a team in this podcast. Yeah, so. <laughs> let's hope so. So there we are. So that is the whole report uh, from the understandmyself.com personality test. There's a cost associated with it, but as I say, there are free versions of the same the same test based on the same research sort of out there on the internet. But as we've said all along, I think just this whole reflective process of taking some time to look at yourself and to think, you know, where do I fit in a leadership team? Are there any things that I'd like to work on? What am I really good at? You know, is a really important thing to do. Yeah, I just don't think it happens enough. I really mm-hmm. don't. I certainly, you know, as you get become an adult, you just feel like you know yourself but actually that introspection that that just stopping um and doing something like that is hugely beneficial mm-hmm. um, certainly on an, on an individual level though perhaps we've yeah. we seem to be coming to the view that on a business level on a team level pigeonholing people and, and saying oh well they are a one of these is perhaps not always so good so it's a it's a really interesting thing for for leadership teams to think about and almost to give them putting your employees through this sort of thing so that they know for themselves like you say on a personal level to have that feedback that they almost start to fulfill these roles subconsciously Mm -hmm. and they it can be hugely beneficial for an organization i'm sure of it it's not really it shouldn't it shouldn't have to be a case of um maybe the the head ceo to be pigeonholing you but it's just for you to take on board those things and do something about it. Yep, and to know what your role is day to day and where you're going and how you fit within the wider team. And things might become a little bit easier in your head because you know that you find things difficult. Mm-hmm. You think, oh, okay, no, I, I know I need to work at that. Good, so that is just about it for, for this episode, episode two. How to support? Well, our website is online now at learningleadership.net. Please head over there and, and have a look. You can connect with us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, And we're really, really keen to get feedback, comments, suggestions and questions. Anything at all would be uh, really, really appreciated. You can find the podcast on Spotify, on various other places, wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you need to get the link to the the feed for the podcast, that is on on our webpage, learningleadership.net. So do head over there and have a look. And finally, we ought to just thank teachers, school support staff, outdoor educators, ground staff, catering staff, anyone involved with the development of young people, you are doing an exceptionally important job. And thank you very much indeed uh, for everything you do. Thank you. And so that is it for episode two. Till next time, goodbye. Goodbye.